would, let's bow our heads. We'll talk to the Lord together. Father, I thank you for the words that we sang, that the soul that leans on Jesus for repose, for rest, if we come to you for rest, for our souls, you will never desert us to our foes, to our enemies, to our sin, to death, to the devil. You will raise us up, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, help us to come to you in our hearts right now and in our minds. May we focus on your word. I pray that you would be with my voice, that I would speak clearly. And I ask that you would be with all our ears. Help us to hear what you have for us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right. Well, this morning... Uh, we are kicking off a new series as a church. We are beginning our study of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book that is bound together by Paul's deep desire to see this first century church, the church in Corinth, united and purified under the gospel of Jesus the King. They are a church filled with divisions, and he wants unity. They are a church filled with uncleanness, and Paul wants them to be pure and unified, all because of Jesus and the good news that Jesus is king. So we are going to be covering that for quite a while, quite some time. I don't have it all exactly mapped out because things come up during the year, but we will be going through 1 Corinthians for a while, and it's a very practical book. One of the most significant letters, I think, in the New Testament for church life and for Christian ethics. So Paul wrote to the church to address what can be boiled down to about 10 key problems. Ten key problems that this church had. Some were things that he'd heard about, problems he'd heard about from people in the church who brought him reports. So if you have 1 Corinthians open in front of you, which I'd encourage you to do in the Bible, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, you can see Paul says, Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So that's an example. Paul has heard from somebody named Chloe, or people from her house, that have told him, hey, God's people are fighting. There's quarrels. And so he's writing to address some things that he's heard. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he's actually writing to address a matter that he has been written to about. So, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7, now for the matters you wrote about. So, 1 Corinthians is a letter where Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians have asked him. You know, if somebody asks you a question, you give them an answer. So, they've asked him questions. What do we do about this? What do we do about that? And so, Paul is writing an answer to those questions. But he's also writing about some concerns he's heard from Chloe and from others about the church. Um, now, 
the fact that Paul is responding to things that there was actually a letter to him about. There's a letter they wrote to him. We don't have that letter. We don't know what he's responding to exactly. So that makes 1 Corinthians a little tricky at times to interpret. There's some key places in 1 Corinthians, guys, where Paul quotes from their letter to him. So he says, you said, but I say. But he never says it that clearly. It can be really hard. He's like, wait, is Paul saying that? Or is he quoting the Corinthians saying that? It's a little tricky for us to sort out. Have you ever listened to one side of a phone conversation? We were talking about this a little earlier at the sermon discussion. And you're listening to somebody talk to somebody else, and it's obvious you don't know who they're talking to, but the other person on the end of the line has some problems. And so you're trying to listen to the person that you're in the room with and think, what other, who is this person they're talking to? What are they struggling with? But you can't hear their side. You only hear what that person is saying. It's like mirror reading. You're, you're trying by looking at that person to, to understand what that other person is saying. And that is what makes 1 Corinthians a little tricky. Because there's no quotation marks in the original text saying, this is what the 1 Corinthians said. Now this is what Paul said. So that's some of the things we'll be wrestling with as we work our way through the letter. So, for this morning's message, I'm going to begin our time together by looking at the first three verses of this letter. And as we do so, I'm also going to lump in a big overview of the book. So we're going to start the first three verses, but we're also going to do a flyover and cover what all these ten issues are that Paul is going to address. Kind of whet your taste for where we're headed in the days to come. So let's read the introduction. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, we'll look at three things in this three-verse introduction. First, we're going to look at the church of God in Corinth. Who were the Corinthians? What was the city like that they lived in? If Paul's going to be responding to some big problems that Corinth had, we should try, and we don't know what Corinth is asking him about, and we've never been to Corinth. We can't go back 2,000 years in a time capsule. We should try to figure out as much as we can about this city from the ancient documents available to us, the writings of the past, and whatever the Bible says about the Corinthian church. What are the Corinthians like? The second thing we're going to look at is that Paul calls this church... The sanctified church. The saints. They are saints. And when we talk about the sanctified church, I'm going to cover the ten things that the sanctified church is wrestling with. It turns out that these saints 
have sins. You don't, that might cause some mental confusion. Wait, a saint with sins? Yeah. Big sins. Paul calls these people saints. And then for 15 chapters, dives into sins. And we're talking some pretty heavy stuff. And so we'll do a flyover of that. And third, we're going to look at what Paul says about these Christians in verse 2. Paul says Christians are people who everywhere call on the name of the Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, we could say it in so many other ways. But you call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And you're saved. So, let's dive right in. The first Corinthian church. What was ancient Corinth like? Put yourself in a time capsule, right? What would it have been like to live there? The Bible commentator Gordon Fee, who has written more on 1 Corinthians probably than most, um, Gordon Fee writes that Corinth was like the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world, all put together. Like New York City, Las Vegas, and L.A. In other words, it was like New York City was like a huge port city on the sea. And it was filled with cutting-edge ideas and aspiring business owners. It was also filled with all sorts of liberal thinking, like we see on the West Coast, and out-of-control sexual immorality of every kind imaginable, like we see in Las Vegas, and gambling, and all sorts of greed. The ancient city, in addition to all that immorality and greed there, this city of Corinth, they loved their public speakers, their impressive public speakers. They, they loved the guy who could give a good speech. So those are some of the things we'll be tackling in chapters 1 to 4. And social status to the Corinthians was everything. Who you knew, who you were associated with, who you were connected to, where you came from, that was a big deal in Corinth for everything in life. Status, power, money, connection. You wanted to be on the in crowd, right? So we'll, we'll be covering some of that, what that means for us. Idolatry, worship of false gods, that was at the center of public life. We have our grocery stores, they had their temples. The people of Corinth worshipped the Greek god Apollo and numerous other gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon of gods. But the god that they got the most excited about in Corinth was the god Aphrodite, the god of sex. And sexual immorality is what Corinth was perhaps most known for. As a port city... Their brothels and temples enjoyed a steady stream of sailors and traveling politicians and merchants from all over the ancient world who came to stay and play. You could almost say what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Every two years, the Isthmian Games were hosted there in Corinth in honor of the great sea god, Poseidon. They're on the sea, and they worship this sea god. And they had these big games there that were basically an 
ancient version of the Olympics combined with like rock concerts. And they pulled in thousands of the rich and famous into town. Now, um, friends, I think it's easy sometimes for us to look at the news and we shake our heads like, what's this world coming to? We look at the immorality, the corruption, the evil in government. We say, what's happening to this world? Things have never been this bad. We would do well to study history, I think. This world has never been good outside the garden. If America feels bad, meet Corinth. We have a lot in common. And yet, there were many Christians in Corinth. Many in Corinth had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul and his ministry partners. And yet, these early Christians, they had a lot to work through. They came to Jesus with a lot of baggage and a lot of false ideas and assumptions from their culture that they needed to sort through and bring under the lordship of Jesus. What would it look like for these Corinthians? You just mentioned the name Corinthian, and it was like, whoa. Party animal, crazy, immoral person. What would it look like for them to bring every aspect, for a Corinthian to bring every aspect of their life under the lordship? Jesus. This is what Paul is trying to help this early church grapple with. In fact, Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church, and he visited them personally a couple times. We actually, we only have the second letter and the fourth letter. We call the second letter 1 Corinthians, because it's the first one we have, and we call the fourth letter he wrote to them 2 Corinthians, because it's the second letter we have. So, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we read in our Bibles, you see 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in your Bible. In between those letters, there was actually um, the real 1 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians. So, 1 we don't have, 2 we have, 3 we don't have, and 4 we have. Okay? That's confusing. That's Basically, we see that in the book because Paul references things like, in my former letter, I told you this. And then in 2 Corinthians, we can read about the third letter that he wrote. And so, Paul wrote to this church a lot because they had a lot of things they needed to sort through. All right, so that's a little bit about Corinth. And we'll, we'll get more information on Corinth as we go along in this series. What I want to look at next is what Paul calls them, the sanctified church. Look, look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called, literally, saints. And he says holy ones, which is what saint means. When you think of the word saint, okay, so I want you all to, to think. When you hear the word saint, what comes to mind? If you have any Catholic background, they have chosen to um, call certain people like saints. These are the saints, past people. And it's a practice of elevating people um, who were really godly. Many of these saints were truly godly, godly people. Um, some of them were like, really? That person was sainted? Uh, who did they pay? Um, 
Boy, so there, there is some corruption in this sainting process, but saint is a godly person. But if you know any saints, they had sins in their lives. But I think sometimes we tend to think of a saint as someone whose feet doesn't touch the ground, who never does anything wrong. But the truth is, every Christian in Corinth that truly trusted Jesus, Paul is calling them saints. We're about to meet these saints in the pages that follow. And you're going to be like, "Are these, these people are saints? Like, what in the world, Paul? But no, every Christian is a saint. So right now, sitting in our church, we have Saint Jacob. And we have Saint Carl. Okay? We have Saint Carol. We have Saint Richard. We have Saint Johanna. We have to get used to this language. This is the language of the Bible. We sang it earlier. Um, we sang, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. It's not singing about some squeaky people. No, it's like, we saints, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, have a firm foundation. The word of Jesus. So a saint, what is a saint? A saint is someone who has been claimed by God to belong to him. A saint is someone who has been cleansed by God through Jesus. And finally, a saint is somebody who has been called by God to live and love as Jesus did. Claimed, cleansed, and called. You could say more about it, but that is really at the heart of what it means to be a saint. And the Corinthians were saints. They were claimed by God. They were cleansed. They were washed by Jesus' blood, and they were called to follow Jesus as those who call on his name. That's what Paul is calling them to do in his letter. Paul is writing his letter to the saints and saying, Y'all are saints? Live like saints. Okay? It's like, if you were to write to a sports team, you all are on the New York Yankees? Play like a Yankee, right? Don't score for the other team. Live like a saint. The holy ones are to live holy. The cleansed ones are to live clean. Listen to what he, what, what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says this. He says, Do you not know, saints, don't you saints know this, that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, This is what some of you were. But, so you were all those things, but you were washed. Hear the cleansing language? You saints, you had a bath. You were sanctified. You were justified, declared right in God's sight, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So now, because you have been sainted, despite your train wreck of a past, you have been sainted because you turned to Jesus. I now saint you in the name of Jesus. You've been claimed by him. You belong to me, says God, through Jesus. You've been cleansed by his blood. Not just past, but present and future. And you've been called to 
follow him. And so these are ten things now that Paul says that the church needs to work on big time in their following the Lord Jesus. So, here's the first problem. The first of ten things. First Corinthians. And we're just going to work our way through Corinthians. So if you have First Corinthians open, I'd encourage you, okay, to follow along as I read the headings. This will just give you a good... You ever do a flyover in an airplane and look at the ground? That's what, that's what we're going to do. So, so I'm just telling you, if, if you can, look at the ground. Okay? We're, we're flying over the ground of 1 Corinthians. So, the first problem is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 21. It turns out the Corinthian church was copying the culture around them, and with their, their fat, obsession with different uh, categories of people. The rich and the poor, the weak and the powerful, the who's who of the town. The church had a who's who list as well. They were dividing up also around their favorite preachers and church leaders. Some people liked Paul. Some people liked Apollos. They were unifying around different people and breaking up around different you know, people who are viewed as weak, weren't going to be friends with people who are viewed as strong, and on and on. So Paul addresses these problems by saying that the gospel about Jesus being crucified on the cross for sinners to defeat sin and death, Jesus' good news, he said, Paul says, it turns the way society thinks about power and weakness and about divisions between people, it turns it upside down. So Paul says, you think Power is important. Let me show you power. Our Jesus died on a cross. Weak. You want to see wisdom? You would. You love wise people and you want to be seen as wise and just associated with wise people or wise speakers? Let me show you the wisdom of God. The cross. Where Jesus dies for his enemies. This is the wisdom of God. Can you... It looks like foolishness to the world. You look, the world looks at the cross and says, loser. You want to see a winner. You don't see a man screaming on the cross. Forgive them, Father. That's, Christianity is a religion of losers. If By the world's way of looking. But this is the wisdom of God, says Paul. The cross is the power of God for salvation. So... We're going to be looking at how the divisions in the church about foolishness and wisdom, about different teachers that they're rallying around, are all, they'll all fall away if only people unify around Jesus and around the cross of Jesus. The second problem is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. Apparently, there's a man who is in a relationship with his father's wife. This may or may not have been his biological mom. Most likely it wasn't. His father had married a younger woman, and now he was dating her. Either way, it was a shocking situation, even to the unbelievers in Corinth. This guy's hooking up with his dad's wife. 
And the unbelievers in the town are like, do you see what these people, this guy's doing? It was a situation that had the potential to carry great shame on the reputation of Jesus. They were getting known publicly as a church that tolerated that level of evil. And yet, they were still, as a church, continuing to boast about how great a church we are. Yeah, yeah, we've got that, but have you heard our music? It's awesome. Whatever. We've got the best praise team in town. Who knows what they were saying, but they were proud. We've got the greatest spiritual gifts in the country. And yet, these type of things are going on. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud? You should be ashamed, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. You should remove the evil from your midst. Paul talks about that in chapter 5. The third problem is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. There's actually two problems in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul tackles. Apparently, some Corinthian Christians were treating each other so poorly, they were dragging each other into court and suing each other. And Paul addresses this situation by reminding the Corinthians of their status as those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God together. You're going to rule the world together. You, you saints, you're going to live together for eternity. And here you are dragging each other to court. How can you keep sinning against each other in a way that requires this level of ridiculousness? Chapter 6 deals with another problem, though. Problem 4, found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. There we learn that some Corinthian Christians are excusing sexual immorality because, according to them, it occurs outside their bodies, in their flesh. And what happens outside their body stays outside their body. In other words, I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't affect what's on the inside, my soul, my heart. It's a form of Gnosticism that he was dealing with. And Paul counters it by reminding them that their flesh and their body and what they do in their bodies, it really does matter because their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God cares about their bodies. God's going to raise their bodies from the dead, just like he raised Jesus. And because their bodies are connected by faith to the body of the risen Jesus, whatever they do with their bodies, they're dragging Jesus into it, says Paul. That's a huge deal. And finally, he says, you don't own your body. Jesus paid for your body. If you're a Christian, Jesus owns your body. Your body matters. So Paul addresses their thinking there and corrects them in the fourth problem. The fifth problem arises in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 40. This is one of the things that the Corinthians wrote about. We've got some married people, and we've got some single people. And we've got some married people who uh, have issues, and we've got some single people who have issues. Like what? And Paul writes this whole chapter to sort out the different questions he's asked about married people and single people, and how each one ought to act under the lordship of Jesus. He wants them to view singleness as a gift 
from the Lord to be used to the honor of Jesus. And he wants married people to view marriage as a gift to be used under the Lord for the honor and glory of Jesus. The sixth problem comes up in chapter 8 all the way up to chapter 11, verse 1. So it's a big section. Perhaps this is one of the most, uh, the problems that is requires the most, uh, I don't know, it, it's just the most removed from our modern context. Because it has to do with food being offered to idols. But it has plenty to teach us about how to love our fellow brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died. The principles found in this chapter are super important. Basically what was happening is some Corinthian believers were eating food that had been offered to idols. False gods of metal and stone. Um, I heard earlier Sarah was saying she always looks for deals on meat. Right? Imagine... Food sacrificed to an idol, it was some meat. The chicken went and got sacrificed to Poseidon, and Sarah finds a deal in the market. She doesn't know where it came from, but it's on sale. Turns out the idol couldn't eat it. So it goes to the market, right? The priests didn't want it. They just wanted to make a buck off it. And Sarah doesn't really know. It doesn't really care. Anyway, idols are nothing in the world. They're not real. I can eat it and give it to my family. But there was other Christians who were going to the temple and there's this big worship of Poseidon going on with the food sacrificed to him there and they're eating it there. Oh, dance a little bit, eat some free food, get some snacks, maybe see the prostitute and then head out. Okay? That's a huge problem. And so Paul, Paul's dealing with all sorts of stuff in these chapters talk about that. Paul does not want Christians to participate in anything over which Jesus is not Lord, and he doesn't want them to do anything that would harm the conscience of someone for whom Jesus had died. Problem number seven comes up in 1 Corinthians 11, chapters 2 to 6. I'm not going to talk about this much. Paul addresses wearing head coverings in church. I'll just say, this is one of those issues that, you, you, have, you, have you ever seen a woman covering her head with a, with a bonnet or something? It's because of this passage. And there's genuine Christians who really believe that's, this, this applies to us today. And there's some that say, no, Paul is addressing a specific issue that was going on in Corinth. That the principles still apply to us today, but we don't need to cover our heads or not cover our heads. You know, like if a guy has a ball cap in church, it's not sin, right? So we're going to be looking at that. So that's going to be, I don't know when, we might even get to that in December. 1 Corinthians 8, 11, verses 17 to 34, Paul hits on the eighth problem in church. Apparently some of the wealthier Christians were getting to church early before the working class could get there. Okay? Imagine they're meeting on a Sunday night, and all the slaves and the servants, they're working all day, but the rich people, they get to church early. There's communion. Behold, the body and the blood of the Lord. You know, I don't know when 
Brad's going to be here, but let's get started. And they were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper, eating it all, and nothing is left for their brothers and sisters in Christ. You arrived late, you missed out. And Paul attacks this head on. At the Lord's Supper, he says, you are eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus who sacrificed his life for you. How in the world can you eat and drink selfishly in ways that leave your brothers and sisters in Jesus with nothing to eat? This is an unworthy manner to eat without discerning or caring about the other body of Christ. You're eating and drinking judgment on your own heads, he says. Serious stuff. We don't really get a concept of how that could even happen because we have this little cracker and this little cup of juice. But they were actually getting drunk on this stuff. It was a full meal. The ninth problem is a big topic, spiritual gifts. That's found in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. Basically, some Christians are making a huge deal about the more flashy gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues, and they're using those gifts to build themselves up and to make a big show about how spiritual they are, or those who had the gift of prophecy were making a big deal about how knowledgeable they were. They were not building up and encouraging and loving their brothers and sisters in Christ with the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. What's more, unbelievers were walking into their gatherings and thinking, you know, it's crazy. You know, everybody's talking out of turn. It's just nuts. So Paul pleads with them to pursue love and all its fruits by using the various ministries that the Holy Spirit has given the body in the ways the Spirit intends them to be used to serve and build up the family of Jesus. The final problem that we're at is one that Paul developed, devotes the entire chapter 15 to. Shockingly, truly, this should be shocking to us, some Christians in Corinth are denying that God will raise Christians from the dead. In this chapter, Paul says that if Christians aren't raised bodily, then there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Christians aren't raised. And if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, says Paul, there is no gospel. Christianity is a joke, and you are all the butt of it. That's basically what he says. You're fools. But Jesus didn't get raised. And this is one of the most precious passages in the New Testament on the resurrection. And Paul rose up his sleeves and says, let's talk about the resurrection. But Christ was raised from the dead, he says. The last Adam has defeated death and will defeat death for the new humanity, all who follow him. So, that's the last issue that the Corinthians were dealing with and Paul addresses. So there you have it, the Corinthian church. Let's step back. Imagine you walk into the Corinthian church. Somebody's house. Let's say it's Chloe's house. And you walk into Chloe's house and the courtyard is filled with Christians. Things have already started. Over in the corner you got a rich guy with his arm around a young woman that his dad used to be married to. They're obviously dating. Nobody wants to talk to him about it because he's rich and famous. 
Then you got somebody in front of you who walks up to you and greets you. It's the church greeter, but he's drunk. And he's got breadcrumbs all over his clothes. You look over at the communion table with nothing there. He came to bathe. He ate it all. Then over in a corner, you see a woman slouched over. She's just furious, and she keeps glaring at the lady across the aisle from her. You wonder what's going on. You find out later, apparently, there was a property dispute, and the one lady's dragged the other lady to court and is suing her for a million bucks. You sit down, you lean back in your seat, and you wait for a message to be given, and after they sing a few psalms, an older man gets up to preach, and you're like, man, this guy can bring it. He's got impressive speech. You're like, dude, if the Apostle Paul could preach like him, the whole world would be saved. This guy is on fire. And all of a sudden, with amazing rhetorical ability, he starts denying that Christians rise from the dead. You're like, whoa. Paul doesn't say that. Isn't that the like, whole point of Christianity? <laughs> like The main thing, the resurrection, Jesus defeats death and the devil and hell. But he sounds so persuasive. Suddenly you hear the back door open and a few men slip in late. They're coming from the local temple of Aphrodite, where they've just spent a few minutes with prostitutes. And they come with bags loaded with meat, sacrificed to idols. Of course, the idols didn't eat the meat. Who wants some? The teaching stops for a minute, and while everyone's distracted, all of a sudden, over in the corner, five people start speaking in tongues. Then somebody interrupts them because they've got a prophecy that they want to share. And an unbeliever who doesn't know Jesus walks out saying, these people are out of control. All right? This is maybe a bit extreme of a picture, but I think this circus show reflects all the issues that Paul is dealing with in his letter. This is a broken, broken church. Some people get really hurt by churches. There's no perfect church, and some churches are really broken. Some people go on a search for the perfect church, and, and sometimes they think, man, if we could just get back to the way it was, the golden age of church. There's no golden age of church. There's never been a golden age. This is like one of the first churches ever. And it's not a golden age. It's a broken people learning to follow Jesus. They need to be taught. That's why Paul is writing to them. The saints need to learn how to follow Jesus in every area of life. So, that's why Paul's writing this letter. There's one last thing I just wanted to point out briefly. The church is a church that calls on the name of the Lord. That's what it means to be a saint. A saint is somebody who, along with all saints everywhere, calls on the name of the Lord. I'll just read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 3 for us again. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sainted, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Called to be saints. Together with all those everywhere. Who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not this generic God, but on specifically Jesus Christ. We call on Jesus the Lord. This is a phrase lifted right out of the pages of the Old Testament. To call on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament is to describe what people who trust God do. If you trust God, you call on his name. One key place you can see this, the prophet Joel. Chapter 2, verse 32, Joel writes that in the last days, the days of the Messiah, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To call on God's name means you rely on him. You trust him to show up in your hour of need. You cry out to him in trouble for forgiveness from sins, from judgment. You pray to him, you lean on him. God's people call on Jesus' name and no other name. This is at the heart of what the saints do. They call on the name of the Lord. So, in conclusion, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, addressing ten areas that they need to grow in, in obedience to Jesus and to the good news about him. And yet, even though this church has drifted so far afield, Paul still calls them saints. To the saints in Christ Jesus, he writes. Not because these people were morally perfect. They obviously were not but because they've been called to belong to the Lord Jesus and because they've been cleansed from their sin by Jesus. So as we apply this, I want us to think about our context, our identity, and our call as Christians. What's our context? Where do we live? We don't live in Corinth. We live in the Granville region, in the state of New York, in the United States, in the 21st century. Some of the issues and challenges we face in Granville are some of the same challenges and struggles that Paul writes about in Corinth. And we're going to be making direct applications. Some of them are different. But something I'd like you to just be thinking about this week is if you were to write the Apostle Paul letter, like the Corinthians wrote, what would you ask him? You know, if you're confused about something, and what were some of the, what would be some of the issues that you think the Apostle Paul might address the churches in Granville with? I'm, I'm not going to give you any answers. Just think about it. So if the Apostle Paul were to write a letter to the church struggling with all the things that the church is struggling with right now, unity, purity. Yeah? What, what would that letter look like if he were to write a letter to you? Well, I'll tell you one thing it would look like. He would bring the lordship of Jesus, Jesus is Lord, to bear on your situation. What does it mean in your specific situation, in our specific context, to follow Jesus as Lord? Every single one of these ten topics that Paul addresses... Paul makes a beeline to Jesus and the cross. He puts everything through that filter, through that lens. 
all of Christian living is summed up in this. Follow Jesus. Call on his name. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. What's our context? Second, our identity. We are the holy ones. The saints. If you are sitting here this morning and you truly call on the name of the Lord you belong to the Lord Jesus. You put your faith in him. You pray to the Father through Jesus. Then you are one who has been claimed by God. You belong to him. And you've been cleansed from your sin. No matter what those sins are, were, or will be. You've been claimed and cleansed. And you've been called to live and love with the one who called you. And so... Finally, our call as Christians is to call on the name of the Lord. If you're a Christian, if you're a saint, sitting here, saints are those who call on God's name. It's at the heart of being a follower of Jesus. When you're scared and anxious, you call on his name. Yeah, you might call a doctor, but in and through it all, you call on the name. When you're scared, you call on his name for stability and hope. When a Christian is sad, grieving, weeping over the brokenness of this world, call on the name of the Lord for comfort and for joy in him. When we are uncertain about what to do, Lord, I don't know what to do here. Call on the Lord for wisdom direction. When we're angry at evil, we call on the name of the Lord for justice. Rise up, O Lord. Judge the wicked. When we are convicted by our own sin, we call on his name for forgiveness. When you are feeling insecure about who you are, filled with shame, you call on his name for assurance and love. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you're feeling discouraged and depressed, you call on his name for the hope you need to press on. In and through everything, a Christian is one who calls on the name of the Lord. And we keep calling on his name. We call on his name in public. We call on his name in private. We call on his name in song. We call on his name. It's the great privilege of those who have been called to belong to Jesus. We can call on him, and he hears us. So let's call on his name right now in prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can come to you and call on your name together. Please hear my cry. I call on your name, Lord, and I ask you to move in our midst as a church. I ask that you would help us. Lord, there are more than ten issues in our church that you could address us about, I'm sure. Because I know there's more than ten even in my own life that I need to grow in. And so I call your name, call on your name, and ask you, Lord, to move in our midst, to help us to bring our whole selves under the lordship of our whole Savior. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.